0: Feeling better, looking better, making
1: life better. It's Life Tips.
0: tips, tips, tips.
1: We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life 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 Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts.
2: Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Chef Rossi. Chef Rossi, welcome.
1: Thank you. Welcome. I feel so welcome to Ready.
2: <laughs> uh, we're, we're, let's discuss the, the, uh, the cover of your fabulous book. Um, is that meant to be like a mohawk, so a pink mohawk sort of coming out of the chef hat there? Tell me about that illustration.
1: I think the artist had a really good time with that. It was like, what do you do with a punk rock chef? And so they're kind of implying the pink mohawk, Mm -hmm. which which sort of summed it up.
2: Mm -hmm. And even the name, The Raging Skillet, there's a lot of emotions in that. Tell us about the name.
1: Well, I had a catering business in the 80s called Parties by Rossi, and I was getting all of these lame phone calls, like would I make chicken cordon bleu or tea sandwiches. It was like madly boring. And at the time, I was writing a cooking column called the Raging Flying Skillet. I thought, I need to change the name of my company to something where these, like, really boring people won't call me in the first place. <laughs> and then it was just like this giant light bulb went off, the Raging Skillet. And from mm. that point on, I have to say my clients are pretty interesting.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about this balance of of, uh, of doing some catering, but also doing a lot of writing. You were both a writer and a caterer, I think, uh, for, or in your journey, if I got that right, in your life.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I came to New York to be a painter.
2: Hmm. But
1: there was something about living on $600 a month that wasn't really so sexy for me. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, I'm tired of macaroni and cheese. So I started bartending, but my clients, they never wanted to leave. I guess I told too many jokes or whatever. (laughs) So I started inventing food so that they wouldn't be drunk. And then after a while, I thought, I'm just going to be a chef. The writing was all along. I was always writing about my bizarre life and my journey. I guess that's probably my, my biggest passion is for writing. Like if I had to make a list, it'd be like writing would be on the top.
2: Hmm. And you've written for Bust, the Daily News, New York Post, Huffington Post. Um and what what has fueled uh, your your interest and continued interest, I guess, in in writing and of course with the with the book that you've published. What is it about writing that, that has been so interesting for you as a way to express yourself?
1: Well, I guess I have had a truly bizarre life. Usually I, I would always tell people stories about various adventures with my over the top mother or this and that and they're always like, it's not true. You made it up. It can't be true. And so I started writing down the stories. I started performing them on the radio hmm. at WOMR and WFMR out in Cape Cod. After 12 years of performing them on the radio, I'm like, this is a book. You know, It turns out it's probably three books, so I think I have two more in me. But um, I just kind of had to purge my, my bizarre life at everyone hmm. else's expense, I guess. No, I think they enjoy it. <laughs>
2: You describe yourself uh, in, in, in your chapter one, how I became a foodie superhero. What, what in your mind makes you a super a foodie superhero? And how can well, I become one? By the way,
1: oh, <laughs> ravioli is always a good start. You know, uh, my mom was kind of like a Hungarian Jewish cook. You know, she was simmering casseroles that took longer to cook than relationships I had, <laughs> at least in the eighties, anyway. <laughs> And, you know, we just kind of wanted normal food where, like, could we have some pizza or pasta? And the moment the microwave, was, you know, joined our house, I mean, my father showed up with this thing, that was the end of my mother cooking.
0: Hmm. And
1: so I started cooking because I was tired of eating what seemed like astronaut food. And I noticed the moment I started cooking was the moment everyone in my family started being really nice to me. Hmm. And so I was like, wow, you know, food is power. You know, I got to remember that.
0: Hmm.
2: Do you feel that your your success with as a chef was inspired by the microwave in some bizarre <laughs> way?
1: <laughs> well, it was certainly my call to arms. Hmm. So I, I don't know that I would have jumped into cooking if it wasn't so necessary. Hmm. Um, so it definitely ignited something in me. And all the food I used to make was kind of bizarre because I was already an artist and doing all these crazy paintings. So I had the same approach to food. So I made some truly spectacularly bizarre combinations, which mostly were only tasty when you were stoned. (laughs)
2: Well, of course, everything might be tasty when you're stoned, based on my memory. Um, But tell us about some of the recipes, and why did you feature these select recipes in in the book? And is that what you really want people to do, sort of read the book, try making some of these recipes? It's an interesting combination.
1: Well, it's... It's different than other books. It's not a cookbook.
0: It's a memoir.
1: Mm -hmm. But I end each chapter with a recipe that's relevant to the memoir. Uh So, for instance, if I have a chapter about being 13 years old and cooking and being kind of a stoned marijuana teenager, the the recipe that ends that chapter is for a Snickers and potato chip casserole, which, you know, kind of suited the moment. And it was something that I actually made when I was 13. Whereas later on when I'm really a chef, that's when I get into, like, the more chefy recipes. Do you have children yourself now? No, but I seem to have about 35 people that are breastfeeding on me.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs>
2: um, well, let's talk about some of your favorite stories and recipes. Give us at least one story and recipe that would follow so we could get inside your head.
1: Well, I think I'll have to give you the Snickers one since I just sort of set that up. And it's a spectacularly easy recipe. After the book was sort of at towards the end and I was recipe testing things, I just assumed that this would be horrible because I was 13 when I made it. And it turned out that it was actually really great, and I have served it at weddings, and people love it. The idea is that you chop up Snickers bars and you scrunch up some salty potato chips, and so you saute your Snickers bars over low heat in some butter, and then you throw in marshmallows, a couple handfuls of marshmallows, then you dump it in a bowl and mix it up equal parts with the potato chips, and then you press it into a mold of some kind and chill it, and then you cut however you want, squares or pie-shaped or circles, whatever floats your boat. You get this thing that's sort of like a cross between a Rice Krispie Treat and a Snickers bar and a potato chip. It's like salty, sweet, and it's sickeningly delicious.
2: I must say it sounds terrible on the surface, but I'm guessing it is wildly popular and people just it's keep coming fantastic. back for more. Yeah.
1: fantastic. I had some wedding clients come over and I had just been recipe testing. I'm like, you want to try something? And they were like, we have to have this at our wedding. This oh, that's awesome.
0: Good.
2: Oh, how did you invent that? And, and what was your inspiration for that concoction? Well,
1: my- and how many failures,
2: by the way, did you have along the way?
1: <laughs> oh, I had a couple failures along the way. My inspiration was that I love toasting marshmallows in the fire, and I love Snickers bars, and I love potato chips, so I thought, why not? But <laughs> the first incarnation of that was the Snickers and potato chips without the marshmallows, and it really just kind of turned into Snickers potato chip soup. Like, it needed the binding of, of the marshmallows.
0: Hmm.
2: How important are the ingredients? I mean, what kind of potato chips are you using? Like, for example, if we threw in barbecue chips, yuck, I just could not imagine oh, that. Oh, no. Run no, for no. the hills.
1: <laughs> that wouldn't work, and sea salt with, with, um, with um, vinegar wouldn't work. You ah. just stick with like a wise potato chips or just a simple salt potato chip. A Cape Cod chip would be fine.
2: Hmm. What influence did your, did your religion that you grew up with uh, have on your, on your cooking and on your storytelling?
1: Well, I have a, a kind of a bizarre upbringing in that I was raised what you might call lowly orthodox which meant, like, we kept a kosher home and we kept the meat and the dairy dishes separate, but we could eat the fish sandwich at McDonald's. And then you mix that up with the fact that my parents bought some swampland in Florida and the boondocks and really a rednecky area when I was growing up and subjected us to spending months on end in this area where um, really you could only get kind of like soul food, white trash sort of stuff And so my mother incorporated it into what we were eating. So we would eat these things like, as an example, kishka and grits. Hmm. I mean, I'm the only person I know that can honestly say they've eaten kiss. <laughs> I mean, what you know so of course, I had to either become a caterer or a serial killer I
0: mean, <laughs> there now, were only
2: two choices <laughs> there were
1: only two choices so I throw in a lot of fun Jewish recipes and I throw in a lot of white trash recipes and it's hmm. probably my claim to fame that in being like the multi ethnic caterer, you know bride is Jewish, and the groom's Jamaican, you know who are you gonna call?
2: Tell us briefly about your your, your wild uh, uh, upbringing, or, or lab- being labeled as a wild young kid, uh, and 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 how that has influenced your your foods.
1: Well, I think I mean I think that I was really cemented in 1972, like mm-hmm. my sense of style, my sense of music, my sense mm-hmm. of everything. But at that point, I had pink hair, and I was mainly listening to Blondie and Joan Jett, and I was very rebellious. Mm. And now you know I'm much older, and I'm running a business, and I'm relatively normal. But it's still in there. I I love to rebel, rebel, rebel in like every way you can. And so I don't like rules and regulations. Like a lot of times, I'll hire chefs right out of cooking school, and they're they're like, you cannot put jalapeno in a Blanc Like, what am I going to get arrested? Like, am I doing something here? Of (laughs) Mm. course, I can. I could put ketchup in it too if I want to.
2: Mm. Your mom shipped you off to a young rabbi who took in and uh, uh, reformed, I would think, rather successfully in your case, wild Jewish kids. Um, Mm. Tell us about that experience. How was it like to kind of be tossed out of the house, if you will?
1: (laughs) Well, it was terrible. Of course, my Mm. parents couldn't handle me so they got this brilliant idea i was about 16 years old and they had read about this hasidic rabbi in crown heights brooklyn who turned around wayward jewish girls so they thought they'll drop me off with him and he'll turn me around they somehow had neglected to notice that crown heights brooklyn in 1981 was one of the most dangerous places that you could possibly <laughs> drop off wow hit. Um, I mean, you took two two steps out of the neighborhood, and you had not a good chance of living. Hmm. Um, and then in the neighborhood, you know, I fit in like not. You know, here I am, this wild, pink-haired kid with all the posse. Wow. wow. It did get me to New York, and it, somehow I survived that. I mean, I managed to stay in that neighborhood for two years until I turned eighteen. Yeah. And then promptly moved into Manhattan and never looked back. Hmm. But um, I always win the most interesting how I came to New York story. That's what
2: <laughs> were. <laughs> were you humbled by the, the intensity of that neighborhood and did that tame the wild one slightly to know there was such a chaotic world happening all around you?
1: Well, sure. I mean, I thought I was, like, such a little badass in the Jersey Shore. <laughs> you know, the most dangerous thing you have to worry about is if, is if maybe you step on a broken beer bottle, you know. And now, suddenly, there's every imaginable kind of crime happening all around me and terrible poverty. And, I mean, after that, you know, I was like, I couldn't even believe I thought I was tough because I was just terrified, mm-hmm. really, for the whole time I lived there. You know, by the time I left, I got my mojo going again, but it was really two years of being terrified, so
2: Hmm.
1: Um, I can't say I... Was
2: that part of the secret sauce of the rabbi who was having so much success with wild creatures like you?
1: He did not have any success with me.
2: (laughs) For the record, I love it.
1: For the record, I left that neighborhood just as gay as I was when I came in. Actually, when I came into the neighborhood, I thought I was bisexual, but... When I left the neighborhood, I was like full-blown gay. So he was not very successful. I think he was supposed to do some sort of conversion therapy on me. It didn't work. Oh, I would. You know, I'm surprised
2: that's the focus of the conversation, though. I mean, being wild, you were arrested prior to going there. I mean, it seemed Mm -hmm. to me like you were you were reformed in some way. Maybe you're not giving him the credit that he is due.
1: Well, uh, I never got arrested again. So there's that. (laughs) You see. (laughs) Who <laughs> is that? And you know what? My hair was uh, no longer pink when I left the neighborhood. It was sort of zebra-striped, which was like a little easier to get a job. So, you know, I give him that.
2: Do you, are you still in touch with him, or is he? have you yeah, moved well know. beyond?
1: Is he
0: in no, another I world now? I would
1: say that we kind of parted on bad terms. Is that so right? He was, he was very disappointed that he couldn't turn me from, which means religious, yeah. And I guess I was very disappointed that that seemed to be the main thing he cared about as as opposed to my individuality. So I think we had a mutual agreement to just not talk again.
0: Hmm. What, what
2: What is your position now on religion? I'm curious, are you still... Well,
1: my brother and his wife uh, and their um, daughter, one of their daughters, are all very religious, ultra-Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And my other niece is lesser religious but still orthodox and uh, my nephew's on his way so really like half my family is very religious and mm-hmm. I completely support their right to do as they want to do my my only thing is to protect yourself and protect your individuality mm-hmm. Like I met a lot of 20 something year old men and women in that neighborhood who weren't remotely considering doing what they wanted to do with their life or follow anything like their passion They were just doing what was expected of them, and they were very sad and depressed because of it. I also met a lot of people who were following their passion and were fulfilled regardless of what people thought of it, and and they were happy.
0: Hmm.
2: Let's take a break, everyone, back in just one minute.
1: Life Tips will be right back after this short break. visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E digital.com. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? Studies show that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average. The web marketing experts at WMETraining.com can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the web marketing experts at WMETraining.com. More refreshing talk
2: radio on air and on demand 24-7. Only on Cranberry Radio.
1: And now, back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts.
2: Welcome back, Chef Rossi. It's great to have you with us
1: today. Hello. 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 <laughs> I'm curious about your hair today. <laughs> <I'm> not... <laughs> Well, I'm a Leo, so I'm all about the hair, of course.
2: <laughs> what does your hair look like? Describe it to the you audience. You know what?
1: Today, actually, it's, it's, there's a lot of it, but it's kind of normal. It's blonde with highlights, you know, okay. and very often wrapped up in a schmata when I'm cooking. But when I'm not cooking, it's kind of out there.
2: How there's much nothing, do you How much do you cook now? Do you cook and entertain quite a bit as part of your normal pattern in life?
1: At this point in my career, I have been lectured by many owners of catering companies who have told me that my business would be much bigger and richer if I would stay out of the kitchen, (laughs) that I should just do the sales and write the menus and really be an executive. But then I don't have any fun, and I get depressed. So mm. I'm still in the kitchen. I'm still making the sauces and the marinades. I have kind of like the cushy job, like you would call me, like the saucier. you know. Mm. I'm in the front making the marinades and sauces and dips, and my chef is the one that's doing the grilling and the searing and the butchering and all the stuff that I don't think is fun. So I don't think I'll be stepping out of the kitchen as long as I'm in business because when I do, I just get a little bit sad, and then what's the point?
2: My guess is you are the business, and you're the character of the business. Do you interact and go to most of the events that you cater?
1: Mm-hmm. I do, because I'm psychotic. <laughs> but I, I go to probably 90% of them, wow. which is like, exhausting, but I don't know. I'm a little bit of a control freak, and the brides and grooms are always so happy when they see my face. And then once I get some applause, then I leave.
0: Nice.
1: I had my, e- I had my ego you know, kind of saturated, then I can go.
2: Weddings are a challenge. I'm sure you would agree with that. Um, Mm -hmm. Why focus on that, or has that just become part of of, of the DNA of your business?
1: It just happened organically. I mean, I started out as a corporate caterer, and that was uh, in the 90s. The whole corporate business went kaput with that first recession. And I catered someone's wedding, and they were like, oh, my God, this is the best food I ever had at a wedding. And they told someone else, and they told someone else. And the next thing you know from people telling someone else and someone else, I was a wedding caterer, but it wasn't like I started out that way. It just sort of happened.
2: Are there another, Is there another story in the book that you could share with us that that is the epiphany of, of uh, you and your journey, so far at least?
1: Well, I will tell you a story that very few people believe actually happened until they met my, my friend Magdalena. Then she vouches that this actually happened. So I had this larger-than-life friend, Magdalena, who looked a little bit like a drag queen. And my mother was convinced that every rotten thing I was doing, smoking cigarettes, doing drugs, whatever, were all because of Magdalena. And so when I moved to Crown Heights or was forced to move to Crown Heights, my mother thought, you know, she was not happy that I was so far away. But she thought, well, at least I'm away from Magdalena. And so I got a little apartment in the neighborhood and my parents popped a surprise visit and they showed up with all this Hebrew national hot dogs and stuff they would bring. But it happened that Magdalena had been sleeping over and she was in black lace lingerie, which really, you know, this is this woman who's seven feet tall in heels, looks a little bit like a cross between Bette Midler and Dick Butkus. She's kind of pulling on her clothes. And my mother was horrified. just she sits down on the table in the kitchen, she starts sawing through an entomons cake that was half frozen that she brought, <laughs> and all of a sudden something clicked, and she stuck the knife in the air and screamed, "I'll kill you, Magdalena!" <gasps> Started chasing Magdalena around the house, but luckily my mother was 300 pounds and didn't move that fast. Magdalena <laughs> had like six foot long legs and moved very quickly. <laughs> my mother dusted her and ran down the street. My mother running after her, waving the knife. Stay away from my daughter!
0: <laughs> oh my god! Do you
2: uh, and, and you have a wonderful chapter called "Stabbing Mag Magdalena"? Magdalena. <laughs>
1: exactly.
2: The the uh, Do you think if your mom had caught her, she really would have stabbed her?
1: You know, Magdalena and I have talked about that many a time. I'd like to think that she would not have, but I also never saw that look in her eyes again. And she really did look possessed by Satan. (laughs) I, I can't guarantee what would have happened.
2: Have you reconciled with your mom and your parents
1: well, my mom passed away in um,
2: Sorry to hear that.
1: How about before she passed away? Before she passed away, um, we started this new thing where I had gotten my first piece published in Provincetown Magazine. Huh. In, in that piece, I was making fun of my mother, getting her microwave and how hmm. I started to cook. Yeah, it's sort of the piece that later on became Chapter 1.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anyway, I cut it out and mailed it to my mother because we didn't have Internet then. And my mom called me. I thought, for sure, I'm in trouble for making fun of her. <laughs> she was so happy. Mm. She was like, you've immortalized me. You uh-huh. must keep writing about me. She cut it out and made like 50 Xeroxes and mailed it to everyone she ever met. Oh,
2: gosh. Adorable. It, became,
1: it was adorable. Exactly. It became a really big thing between us. It was really wonderful.
2: That's terrific. When was that? At what stage of your career?
1: That was when, um, that would have been 91 when I got my first piece published. So It was wow. like a year before she died. And um, so I had, the, I had the pleasure of mailing her, I guess, six or seven pieces that I got published. And my mother had been a frustrated poet as a younger woman, and it made her so happy. And she made me promise to keep writing about her. And I was like, how could I not? I mean, there's so much material here, you know. Mm.
0: Um,
1: and So it really was a great bonding.
0: Mm.
2: You have a chapter called Provincetown 1992. I, I had a house uh, in, in East Orleans and, and loved, absolutely loved visiting Provincetown. Um, tell us about that chapter and, and your experiences in, in Provincetown.
1: Well, I had been cooking professionally for a while. and you know, In New I York. Went, yeah. In New York. I went from being dropped off in Crown Heights to bartending to cooking, really almost like I hadn't stopped running for uh Ten years or eleven years, uh. and I got laid off from a job and I got unemployment. I was like, "Oh, that's great!" So I followed my sous chef to Provincetown oh. and lived there for I guess it was about nine months. Mm. And just had I just had this complete metamorphosis. I started writing and getting published and really feeling my artist soul sing and really walking on the beach and just just having joy and peace for the first time since mm-hmm. I was. Sixteen. Wow. Um, and then when I came back to New York, I picked up cooking again, um, but it, it was with a lot of sadness. And I tried to make a point from that from that point on of spending a month a year every year at Provincetown, and I really did up until I think the last couple of years it got harder, but hmm. at least a couple of weeks.
2: I just have a few final questions. Do you you see Magdalena? Is she still a friend of yours in in your life?
1: Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, she came to the book event. I did it uh, in New Jersey, in Fairhaven, New Jersey, and I asked her permission to read Stabbing Magdalena. She, (laughs) She said, do it. So that's what I read to the Jersey Shore crowd with her in the front row. It was wonderful.
2: And that chapter, by the way, just opens up with a punchline. My mother tried to stab Magdalena with a steak knife. There, I said it. <laughs> 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 wonderful writing. Hats off to you. Thank a you. A g- couple of, of questions. Um, do you have a favorite recipe in all of these wonderful recipes? I'm, I'm just curious.
1: Hmm. If you had
0: to st-
1: I mean, put I had one to say- together... The Snickers is actually turned into my favorite recipe. Signature. It
0: just
1: just sort of sums up my life a little bit. You know, like the more normal ones, like Herbie the Salmon, that's a great way to cook salmon. Mm. But it's kind of normal, you know. So I guess the the more bizarre, the more I like it. Like our signature desserts in my catering company are Oreo crack and crack balls and duck ice cream cones. I mean, that's the stuff we're famous for, just wackadoo.
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: The Korean drizzle was kind of interesting. I was mm-hmm. at that. The
1: Korean drizzle. I love... I'm hooked on, on Koreanizing everything.
2: Yeah, Korean barbecued so, beef.
1: Made Korean barbecued beef, which I serve as an hors d'oeuvre all the time. We started doing Korean fried tofu, which is fantastic. We do Korean fried chicken. So when I do it, I call it my Jewish Korean recipes.
2: Interesting. I haven't experimented much with making tuna tartare. Do you have any thoughts on that? You have a, you have a recipe in here mm-hmm. for tuna tartare. You
1: know, I've... I've tried it in a couple of different ways, but I come back to this recipe because it's so simple. You just get a sushi-quality tuna, and you dice it up as small as you're comfortable. You make a dressing out of sesame oil and soy sauce, kind of equal parts, and you whisk in a really good amount of wasabi. You mm. really loves it. Mm. And then you toss up your tuna in this maybe like 20 minutes before you want to serve it, It's kind of fun to garnish it with sliced scallion or toasted sesame seeds or wasabi sesame seeds if you can find it. And I'll serve it on either a homemade potato chip, which is great, or a cucumber slice, which is also great. Um, Rice crackers are also great. It's really fantastic. I think the chips might be the best one.
2: Interesting. And do you like those cross-cut chips as well that are sort of fresh? Or do you like Mm -hmm. the... yeah? the
1: go-fretts. The go Fretts are great. Yeah, Although yeah. I have to admit,
2: tartar, I, it, yeah.
1: I did a tasting in the kitchen with the go Fretts, which my chef loves making, and Ruffles potato chips, and they were kind of equally great. So, I don't know. The white trash keeps coming back.
2: Well, two final questions for you. Who would you like to get a hold of you, and how can they get a hold of you?
1: Who would I like to get a hold of me? yeah. I would like Lady Gaga to get a hold of me. <laughs> Just catch her in like... a local
2: dive in New York City.
1: <laughs> I'd also like Natasha Leone from Orange is the New Black to get a hold ah, of me. Okay. I really want her to play me in the movie of The Raging Skillet. Just think she would be the perfect Rossi.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Well, how can they get a hold of you and any fans listening in?
1: The best way is to go to my website, theragingskillet.com. And when you go there, not only can you email me through the site, but you'll see my Instagram and my Facebook and my Twitter and my twatter and my blotter and whatever—all those things. <laughs>
2: my Twitter, my bladder, my oh, is that... <laughs> my bladder? My Twitter. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you today. I want to thank you for being on the show.
1: You're welcome. I had a blast
2: good stuff. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see you next week on The Life Good Show. Hope your life's a little smarter, better, faster, and wiser and more raging like the Raging Skillet. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.